Hi, welcome to episode 22 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we're going to talk about the several factors sustaining mental health. And uh, actually, we read this article on uh, Vox recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very interesting about um, the different sorts of treatments that um, are used for treating depression. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that was really interesting about this article that I liked was that um, they talked about not the not how ineffective medication can be, but how there are other factors that have to deal with um, treating depression mm-hmm. and how medication is not always the most effective way. Yeah. And, um, I don't know, what, what did you, um, get from the article when you read it? Well, so the author of the article, his name is Johan Hari. And so I think he's a writer slash journalist who went on this kind of journey and I don't know how long he went on it for, but I think it was even, I think he said three years, something like that. So he went on this three year long journey, right? Sort of seeking out the causes of mental illness. And so interestingly enough, he pretty much found what a lot of us, if not all of us find as therapists. So when we go to school, right, we kind of learn about first the medical model of psychology or psychiatry Mm -hmm. that, you know, you have this obviously brain, right? This sort of important organ that pretty much is or can be kind of encompass or could encompass who you are as a person right and there's some sort of um let's say defect in it or something wrong some malfunction in it that obviously causes you to kind of feel sad or really anxious right or really angry whatever it is right sort of it makes you feel these emotions to the extreme so the medical model teaches us essentially that it's really your brain right there's something wrong with it so you got to go see the doctor the doctor will say oh you got a chemical imbalance here's this pill come back next month and let me know how you feel so what i took away from the article is pretty much the same thing that I took away when I kind of was a graduate student that essentially it's a very sort of myopic view of mental health or mental illness that it doesn't really explain the factors fully right in terms of what encompasses a person's emotional well-being mm-hmm. so for a person let's say who's taking medication right that doesn't in itself mean that the medication isn't important and what I like about the article you know what Harvey says is that essentially the medication is a big help for a lot of people it's just that unfortunately a lot of times what we do is we kind of try to medicate the problems away so instead of saying like okay let's kind of take a holistic approach and a view of your life right let's figure out sort of how do you feel about yourself right how do you feel about other people how do you perceive the world are you optimistic are you pessimistic are you somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. let's say you know kind of are you struggling with poverty are you struggling let's say in school right now are you being bullied like all of these different factors that make up a life these are the things that maybe not always obviously but when you come to a psychiatrist's office they don't really focus on them they just say it's a sort of kind of dysfunction of your brain so what i mainly took away from the article is kind of something that i think that all of us as therapists at least kind of know to some extent is that there's so many different factors underlying depression that or anxiety or anger that you can't just sort of boil it down to a brain chemistry issue which a lot of people do yeah and um actually one of the things that they spoke about in the article was this um it's called social prescribing Mm -hmm. right so there was this uh patient who they uh, referenced like a you know as a little clinical scenario of right Mm -hmm. Uh, her name's linda yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and she she pretty much um she was seeing a psychiatrist one-to-one and the psychiatrist uh, wanted to try a new method for treating her depression. He said, hey, I'd like you to attend uh, group counseling sessions. Mm-hmm. And well, this actually proved to be very effective because what ended up happening is that over the course of, and yes, this took a, a while, but over time, uh, she seemed to show progress. This was over, I believe, a three-year period. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening is um, 
they, they engaged in different activities. I believe one of the central ones that they engaged in was uh, uh, gardening. Mm-hmm. And this kind of brought, um, this gave them an activity to do. Uh, they um, all hung out together. They mm-hmm. <laughs> talked to each other and um, made bonds with each other. Mm-hmm. And um, this was very effective for her. It, it gave her a kind of... Um, how should I say this? Um, it, it, it let her t- be with other people. Right. Right? I made her feel important. Right. Yeah. Like a part of a community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then other people who were also going through the same thing. So her problem wasn't so common. It's not that they were experiencing the same things. Mm-hmm. But she had other people to talk to. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't just her and the therapist. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the people who are around us, our environment is very important in... Yeah. Um, in our uh, mental health, for yeah. sure. You know what the biggest predictor of resilience is? Social support. Mm-hmm. That's literally it. So one of the questions that I would ask clients on an intake, like, well, so an intake is kind of the initial evaluation of the person when they come in. It's literally, what is your social support system? Like, who would you list as a social emotional support system? And who do you think that you can turn to in difficult times? Wow. So the most important predictor. So the people that find it hard, obviously, to kind of rebound from any particular mental illness are the ones who list like either nobody or like maybe one person who's sort of close. Wow, so it's not that many people usually. Yeah, for a lot of them, right? So the thing is why this model is so important and why I think... So let me just kind of sort of turn back and talk about the model itself, right? Right. Uh, Addressing a person's uh, biological, psychological, and social needs, correct? Or environmental? Close, yes. Well, so social... So it's threefold, right? So so the medical model says it's purely biological, right? Sort of you have this prediction... Prediction. You have this... um, what's the word i guess predilection right to sort of feel depressed because of your brain chemistry right so right, it's like serotonin you, yeah and dopamine and yeah mm-hmm, right that's it so the biology is sort of miscombobulated right so that's actually true so the medical model is actually partially true so the other two factors are the ones that you just mentioned so they're social environmental and then the other part is the psychological so the so it's called the biopsychosocial model so the biopsychosocial model posits that it's sort of your dream your genes your pre-genetic or genetic predisposition toward depression anxiety and let's say whatever other ailments and oh man just by the way just as a quick aside so psychiatry has been looking for the sort of sets of genes right that kind of predispose us to these different illnesses and what they've actually found which is like so wild that so you can like find or do they technically have found the genes that predispose you to particular mental health like let's say troubles or problems but the problem is that all of them predispose you to different illnesses so it's like if you have like these kind of this cluster of genes then you're predisposed to schizophrenia ADHD depression right so they can't really figure it out right yeah so it's tough you can't just say oh if you have these genes right you'll have depression so that's why the bi- the biological model is such a problem just for five seconds sure. i want to just mention this uh <laughs> you've heard of epigenetics right yes. yeah so even if you had a gene that this uh, that uh disposes you to a certain uh, character trait or certain traits yep how it may express itself based on environmental social and like whatever is going on internally maybe from some, I mean, actually, sorry, I'm not qualified to say that part. Mm-hmm. I was about to say your diet as well. I, <laughs> I who knows? But I there's hear. all these little well, factors that that deal with the expression of that gene, yeah. and and that's after uh, that's just dealing with the environment as you grow. Mm-hmm. So that's just interesting as well. There's yeah. there's variance, and there. the trauma can even be passed down. Yeah. Right, right. So in terms of the biological model, right, it pretty much posits that like you're kind of it, okay. Let me not say that because it's not true, but. 
it doesn't necessarily say that you're determined to be, let's say, depressed or anxious or whatever, but it does say that it's, well, this random process or random to the extent that we don't really know how to predict it, right? Some people have disordered brains and other people don't that we really don't understand why. So the thing is when it comes to the biological model, so it's only partially correct. So with the biopsychosocial model, it, only, it always asks not necessarily only what do you feel, or not what do you feel like, but it doesn't only look at your brain chemistry or only asks like essentially what your symptoms are. That's a better way of putting it. But it also asks what's going on in your environment, right? Do you feel like, let's say you do have these protective factors, right? Like let's say people who care about you, people you can turn to, people whom you feel like accept you and see you as you are, right? And also on top of that, they ask about the psychological factors, right? I always ask my clients, what is your self-esteem, right? From a zero to a 10, how you how would you rate it, right? What is your self-efficacy from a zero to a 10, how would you rate mm -hmm. it? So obviously at the lower end of the spectrum, we find that there's a high correlation with depression and anxiety, right? So self-efficacy can be described as your ability or rather your sense of your ability to master the world. So if your self-efficacy is low, essentially you're going to kind of feel like shit about yourself. And there's usually a correlation, right? So the lower the self-esteem, the way you kind of see yourself as a whole, the lower your self-efficacy, the lower you kind of see yourself as a way of or as a master of your world. So what we find is that with self-efficacy and self-esteem, right, the psychological, how I see myself, is essentially correlated with these really negative symptoms. Well, they're all negative, I guess. But negative symptoms of, let's say, depression, anxiety, kind of, let's say, these different kind of types of anger disorders, right? And so the biopsychosocial model says, like, what is it that we can do, right, in terms of all of these three factors that can help the person feel better, right? Because often what we find and what Hari found is that when you give a person medication, and it's something that we talked about on, like, I think maybe three, four shows ago, right? 100%. So, right, right, right. So when you just give a person medication, right, it only does so much. So if somebody has moderate to severe depression, right, for severe, it's actually not that effective. So unfortunately, what happens is there's this kind of peak, and then there's this valley, and sort of they pretty much just go back to where they were before. Um, when it comes to moderate depression, it helps them so insofar as it helps them go to therapy, right, to actually deal with these problems where they don't feel debilitated. And I think I mentioned before that when it comes to mild depression, right, it actually doesn't do anything for it. So mm -hmm. when we talk about the medication and what the research says is that it's only really moderately effective and that it's kind of like a means to an end. It's really to get the person to go to therapy to sort of be able to kind of use the tools that they learn, right, critical thinking, um, the ability to socialize, right, in order to build a life for themselves that will actually get them off of the medication. And actually, there's uh, something I wanted to cite sure. from uh, from the article. Mm -hmm. I have it here on a PDF on the left here. Uh, we were going to print this out, guys, but uh, had a little printer issue before. So, yes, yeah, so I'll just read this verbatim. Uh, yeah, Steve uh, Lardy, uh, professor of psychology at the University of Kansas, summarizes the research on chemical antidepressants this way uh, via email. He said, only about 50% of depressed individuals experienced... Uh, an initial positive response to antidepressants and only about 30% achieve full remission. And of all those depressed individuals who take an antidepressant, only a small subset, estimated between 5 and 20%, will experience complete and enduring remission. Yeah. In other words, the drugs give some relief and therefore have real value, but for a big majority, they aren't enough. Right. And that's why it's important to address these, these other factors that influence how to treat depression. So this so way you have more of a as Leon put it, a holistic view of 
how to treat it. Right, of the person, of the yeah. person's psyche. I mean, because here's the thing. My interpretation is that, let's say somebody is on medication, right? And they're still super lonely, right? And they still feel like they haven't been able to achieve anything. So, I mean, I can imagine that for a little bit of time that they'll be like, oh, you know what? I feel happier, right? I did this thing. And uh, by the way, I also think one of the biggest parts that like or aspects that make the medication work is the fact that the person really feels like they've done something to help themselves. So it's like this high of like, I went to the doctor, right? I did what I was supposed to do. So now I kind of feel better because I feel, you know, my self-efficacy maybe went from a three to like a five or a six, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's definitely a part of it, right? Which is why there's this big peak in the beginning, right? Where you're like, wow, I feel great. So, and after obviously some time, right? I mean, the medication is going to work for whatever period. Obviously, it's different for different people. But the point is, it's like if you don't really actually work toward changing your life and figure out kind of what the barriers are preventing you from having the things that you want or even need rather, then, I mean, what's going to happen is like what happened with Hari and with these other people, right? There's this sort of peak and then it kind of falls down. So, um, you know, uh, I, I'm going to throw a curveball at you right now. Shoot. So, you know who just got admitted into uh, rehab? Yes, I saw Jordan Peterson. Yeah, Jordan mm-hmm. Peterson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is that uh, a curveball? For, I don't know if you expected that because we were just going to talk about <laughs> no, 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 I hear you. I like, hear you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for a Klonopin use. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because his wife is going through, and this is a very serious thing, she's going through yeah. serious cancer. Right. And it gave him, like, tremendous anxiety and all that. And uh, I suppose that was for his anxiety. However, when he tried to get off of it, yeah. uh, he had serious physical withdrawal symptoms. Right. And uh, he decided, which, which is, I think, good judgment, mm-hmm. uh, to get himself into rehab. Yeah. It's not like somebody else uh, signed him up for it. So that's that's cool. I understand that he wrote the book, uh, The 12 Rules of Success, and he was a figure who was like supposed to be this person who has everything handled. Or maybe you can still see that they're human, but to some degree they mostly have everything handled. But then you see a case like this, and that's yeah. actually very interesting, at least uh, as far as um, anyone who read his book. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sorry, what did you want to say? No, I'm, no, I'm just technically going to interrupt you. So I was going to say just to be really careful for kind of like the audience or obviously anybody who's listening. So that class of drugs, the benzodiazepines, those are actually very rarely prescribed. So what he was on, the clonopin, a lot of, maybe probably like, I don't know, 80% of psychiatrists wouldn't even give that to him. So especially as the initial drug. So what they initially do is give you an SSRI, right? So an SSRI has very limited side effects, if any at all, and it's much easier to get off of. Not to say that there aren't any symptoms of withdrawal. I mean, people kind of feel shitty after getting off of them. But, but it's definitely the, easier. Yeah, it's not like like oh. like cocaine withdrawal, or it's not like heroin withdrawal, and it's definitely not like clonopin withdrawal. So whoever yeah. gave him that medication, well, look, let me, okay, let me not, I don't know Jordan Peterson. Maybe somebody tried to give him an SSRI, and he's like, hey, it's really not working i still feel really anxious and then they give him however if they didn't that's yeah no especially for somebody without a history of anxiety disorder so if let's say a client were to come in and they were to say hey like all of my life i've had generalized anxiety disorder and like i've tried well maybe i didn't even try these medications but my anxiety is so severe that i can barely even get out of my house right i need something strong so clonopin Again, people would hesitate. They would say, mm, I mean, if you... No, they wouldn't. They probably wouldn't even do it. They would say, let's try the SSRI first and then kind of see if it works. And if not, because the thing is, Clonopin's highly addictive. I'm not surprised. So whoever gave him that, I don't know what their reasoning was, but I mean, most people would hesitate too. That's all I'm saying. Just with the medications, they're not all in the same class. Because sometimes people say, oh, medications, look at Jordan Peterson. He's addicted, see? No, no, it doesn't work that way. Nobody, most psychiatrists would not automatically say, yeah, let's give him benzodiazepines. No, no, no. Yeah. no. I think it's as you, you said before when you were getting a little more nuanced into it. It's possible that they tried SSRIs yeah. first and then went to that. Uh, possibly. Right. 
To be fair, so, we don't know. But, yeah. But sorry, yeah. No, I was going to ask you. So in terms of like kind of symptoms of depression, right? I mean, if you're okay with obviously talking about it. Oh, yeah, more than okay. All right, cool. <laughs> I love talking about it. Because <laughs> I know like for me, right? So that if, let's say from my perspective, and I've never been on any sort of medication, but I know that like the times in my life where it hasn't changed, right? Nothing really changed, right? I kind of was in these low moods. I felt like shit about myself. And do you feel like for you it was the same, right? Where it's like if you were kind of in the space, right, that you felt like, let's say you were lonely, then maybe you felt like mm, I don't know life isn't where you wanted it to be right do you think that a medication would have been enough for you at that time I wouldn't have wanted a medication really why honestly because uh, I okay I wouldn't say I did my, uh, you know I was this researcher mm-hmm. and all that but any any articles that I had seen uh, about um, uh, antidepressants and all that about mm-hmm. uh people more likely to commit suicide or something like that or uh that it's not necessarily targeting the underlying causes of depression although from a more nuanced perspective it is half or no one third in, in no in, in the sense of like any uh belief thought any any underlying uh like cause like that mm-hmm. i'm not talking about like a chemical mm-hmm. uh imbalance like yes uh, i agree yeah if i was low on serotonin and all of a sudden because i've increased my um serotonin i've uh, freed up enough mental resources to now think differently about my life situation by the way that does happen exactly mm-hmm. which is why i'm fair enough uh, that's why i'll be nuanced about it absolutely fair enough um but like at least um anecdotally from my own personal experience when I had seen those articles I had shied away from ever even considering taking an antidepressant I always wanted to address my um, any kind of deep-seated neuroses from a, from a like uh, more of like a psychosocial perspective like just straight up just atta- not attacking uh, more like uh, understanding what are my current thoughts and beliefs yeah. what are some thoughts and beliefs maybe that I could adapt uh-huh. that could maybe assist me um who are the people i'm around Mm -hmm. and um is it good to be around them should i maybe try to be around some other people have different kinds of influences is it uh, both and then i realized it was both and there was and there were more factors as well yeah um so yeah in my own experience um things that helped me with depression was definitely having a peer group and people i could talk to Mm -hmm. um it was also attempting to help myself. Uh, I wasn't in such a... So there were times when I was in a low place where I didn't want to do anything, mm-hmm. to be fair. Yeah. But um, for the most part, I did try to seek resources that would uh, help me out, whether it was um, whether it was a book, whether mm-hmm. it was uh, some kind of video on YouTube, whether it was like a podcast, whether it was... Uh, maybe maybe it's something as simple as music or just having a maybe trying to go out and have a good time or something like that mm-hmm. and maybe it just what well, I wasn't being social enough mm-hmm. it depends like it, it it was never one thing that I needed to yeah. um, have taken care of in order for me to feel happy but like, I, yeah. I wonder with, without let's say uh, medication do you think that it was easy or I mean whatever I mean I don't know because I never tried medication yeah. if you're no, gonna ask no I don't know okay what do you think I was gonna ask I, what I thought you were gonna ask is oh do you think it would have been uh, that it's easier without medication to no okay I'm sorry <laughs> it's okay yeah, yeah. so I was gonna ask so do you think that it was easier or difficult for you to form healthier views of yourself 
It was it was all difficult. It was all right. <laughs> so because that's, all what, yeah, difficult. that's what I'm wondering. Because for like some of my clients, what it is is that the medication actually helps them internalize the things that we talk about. So it's like whereas initially, right? It's so interesting. So I, uh, I'm gonna get kind of sciency on this, right? Because I, I I do think it's important. Okay, so, don't get sciency <laughs> on. Okay, so <laughs> no, no, and then I also I'm afraid to because I don't know that much about it. But so from my understanding of like from his article and from some other things that I've read is that essentially it's sort of like okay so some people argue that it's not a chemical imbalance right that there's a different wiring in the brains of people who struggle with depression and those who don't right so my interpretation of it is and i think he even said this in the article was that essentially when it comes to like dark thoughts right so the people so you know like how shedding we, sy- yeah synapses. yeah the synapse yeah the pruning yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. so you know like when we learn something right so we learn like a language whatever it is right obviously we make these neural connections internally so my wonder is is that so like oh, man there's so much here my brain is like all over the place so like all right so i had a client right so this client was like hey you know like without the medication right it wasn't i wasn't able to like really kind of you know sort of reframe my thinking right it just wasn't possible so from what i understand you know just piecing it together with the article is that like let's say when it comes to synaptic pruning right and you know you prune away all of the positive things that you've learned right so you learned or rather the positive yeah whatever you learn so you prune away kind of the positive beliefs that you have about yourself and you say like maybe even prune away the tools that you had of critical thinking right you just it's not there anymore it's forgotten so in the article the i think it was actually, i don't remember the author not the author the um the researcher Ah, whatever so yeah so he essentially said that it's not so much about chemical imbalances even though i don't think it's black and white i obviously do think that there's a chemical imbalance based on other things that i've read but what he says is that when it comes to synaptic pruning right it's sort of it's easier for us to focus on those dark thoughts right because we prune away all of the i'm this is my interpretation the good information about ourselves maybe even the tools of using it so i wonder right so if somebody who's struggling with depression if maybe they're not able to internalize the positive thoughts or they're not able to internalize the tools right because they're not able to like kind of learn right i wonder if it's like if let's say i'm in the session and i'm teaching this person critical thinking and i'm saying hey you know i know you believe you're a failure but let's kind of examine that i wonder if they're able to even internalize what i teach them which is why the medication is so important maybe the medication in a sense somehow allows them to form these new connections and to learn hence obviously to form these new beliefs and this is just pure conjecture i don't know but i think it's an interesting area um i think there's something to that yeah. yeah, because if uh, if somebody has been used to thinking um, very negatively mm-hmm. for a long time, I mean, you would argue their brain is then wired to think that way. Yeah, just to general, just to right, make it right. no, it's it's true, it's true, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So if you're trying any new behavior, that's gonna take a while for that to have any sort of momentum and to build new synapses, synapses, right. and kind of uh, turn the. Uh, or you know the uh, emotional seesaw the other way right. it would take a very long time mm-hmm. I mean I, I've heard uh, research that says that it usually takes 30 days to um, uh, build a new habit mm-hmm. but to be fair if you spent like not just months let's say years mm-hmm. in a very depressed sort of state of course it's gonna take a long time to to unwire that yeah. and to think other things and it may just be a, a thing of um, just having a, a treat, long-term treatment mm-hmm. and having that build some sort of momentum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose, um, depending on the person, you have to be very careful mm-hmm. with that, especially if they've been thinking negatively for many years. Yeah. But um, yeah, there, there, there's definitely... I think we even talked about um, resistance before. Mm-hmm. Right. Wouldn't you argue that somebody would be resistant to thinking in a 
like a optimistic sort of way if they've been deeply entrenched in depression yeah and my question is why like and that's something i've never really been able to figure out so like with people who have like more moderate depression i think it's much easier right so let's say we'll go through the cognitive thought record right and the whole kind of critical thinking process and mostly not automatically but like within let's say a few sessions they'll get it they'll be like yeah wow i can't believe i ever thought this way this doesn't make any sense but with some of the more treatment resistant patients it's like it doesn't work it's in one ear and out the other they're like nope it just hasn't done anything and I would kind of question them, right? I would ask like, why? What do you think is going on? Because obviously you're thinking irrational. And they would just say, I don't know. That's just, that's it, right? And it sort of kind of stops there. And we're both sort of at the standstill. So that's why I was wondering for you, like, was it easier, difficult for you to reframe your beliefs? Well, here's the thing. Um, one thing that I've had about me for uh, years, even while I was, uh, I don't know what level of depression I had, by the way, to yeah. be fair. Mm -hmm. I was never diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was severe. Right. Maybe subjectively, I would at the time of that depression was it's severe, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Right. But um, for me, I always had a thing where I like to think uh, from multiple perspectives. Um, I did like to think like, uh, what is this person's reason for doing it? doing whatever they're doing what is my reason for doing it how are they interpreting me how am i interpreting them mm -hmm. how is this uh leading where is this leading for mm -hmm. example mm -hmm. um and yeah so because of that i was always open to other ways of thinking it's just that to internalize them and to actually build any sort of momentum to them, that was where the um issue lied because right. I knew, for example, okay, it was plain as day. Okay, yes, I uh, I was depressed, and uh, I was uh, at least to my own inter my own interpretation of myself, I was weird socially mm -hmm. at a time, a uh, little twitchy, little things like that, little behaviors, very reactive, right. all that. And even when I um, read different kinds of sources that talked about being non-reactive. Mm -hmm. um, Things along the lines of affirmations. Mm -hmm. uh, what else? Um, right, so meditation, all that. Yeah. Like even when I realized there were all these methods that I could use, mm -hmm. even to begin to try to use those methods, uh, or to internalize some of the understandings that might have been espoused in certain books, like uh, for instance. Um, if let's say I was really in my mind thinking about past events, let's say so a breakup or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, even if I was reading something that said that uh, whatever happened in the past doesn't really have any, I mean, technically would have no power now if you were just present. Oh, the, the power moment. of now? That's one book. <laughs> That's one book, for example, right? This um or whenever you're thinking of, of, about the yeah now if you're talking about power yeah, <laughs> now if we're gonna go there yeah like anytime I'd be thinking of the past I'm doing it now anytime I'm thinking about the future in terms of like I'm anxious about something or uh, I understood that like if I was present to the to the moment mm -hmm. I would not be uh, using my mental resources like either going backwards or forwards mm -hmm. I would be able to then achieve some kind of some modicum of peace. Right. And uh, be able to uh, move forward with my life and do whatever I need to do at that particular point in time. Mm -hmm. But um, there were also different perspectives on it too. There's also like uh, actually dealing with your uh, past issues or dealing with your interpretations of the future. Right. Yeah. Like it's not just always about um, being present at a moment. Sometimes you you should 
interpret you shouldn't just because here's the thing if you're constantly going uh attempting to be present to the moment Mm -hmm. and anytime you are successfully doing that yes that's that's a beautiful thing Mm -hmm. 100 percent is beautiful uh thing is if um if you're not going after the underlying causes of what are what's creating those thoughts um you can argue that it's almost like you're stuffing down uh, whatever it is that's bothering you every mm-hmm. time you're attempting to just no 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 I'm just going to try to be in the moment right. however um, that's just one way of thinking about it another uh, I think we said this before uh, there's a, a, something from Buddha like a quote where it's like um, if someone shoots an arrow at you and the arrow hits you like let's say in your arm or something like that mm-hmm. you're not going to investigate what's the origin of this arrow <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. why is it why is this arrow <laughs> yeah. here mm-hmm. Uh, who made this arrow <laughs> yeah. and then try to find out everything you possibly can and become right. an expert about the arrow right, right. just to have more understanding about it yeah. the main concern is I just need to pull this arrow out right? Yeah. and that's the idea of just when you're present to the moment and yep. you make that a practice that's that's what that quote is kind of referring to mm-hmm. however I think it's, it's um, it depends I think it really depends because for example say you actually did uh, interpret a past event differently or you attempted to uh, see how and let's say it's again back to uh, it's like a, a bad relationship or something something happened right. maybe you think about what were they thinking why did they act the way they did mm. was uh, it not personal maybe was it not personal right. was it also something that you, you did take some responsibility why does it have to be like it's the other person why can't I you know for example this this is something that uh, I think about all the time mm-hmm. um, anytime I point a finger at someone mm-hmm. I will always think where is my thing? What, what, where's my version of whatever it is that I think they're doing? Right. So, um, yeah. So, uh, if if you if you, if you think about how uh, the other person might have been thinking and all that, maybe then you don't produce as many of thoughts about the past uh, going forward. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be this thing of um, practicing meditation, just being in the moment, not letting a thought you know grab your attention. It might be, hey, maybe deal with the the thoughts you were having you might not produce as many around that subject right. as well so it depends um other t- uh, but there's other schools of thought as well you, you might say it's all an illusion right all your thoughts are illusory mm. and right and Definitely then, don't agree. Uh, yeah. that's too extreme i'm just i'm just throwing out all these different schools of thought there, there also might be um another school of thought that says any thoughts that come to you sort of automatically not not from a place of intuition just these ruminating automatic thoughts Mm -hmm. that that's not necessarily something that if you thought about it you would choose to produce Mm -hmm. therefore you can classify them as system one and system two there you go yeah Mm -hmm. you you might classify it as like uh, you might see where somebody makes that argument about them being illusory right. in a sense because mm-hmm. it's not necessarily something you would produce yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. And also when I started to notice that there were thoughts that I would produce automatically mm-hmm. as opposed to thoughts coming from a place of brainstorming or critical thinking or just, you know, I just would stop to think about something mm-hmm. uh, I noticed there was something it felt strange mm-hmm. I was like why are certain thoughts coming to me automatically why are they negative ones mm-hmm. what's going on over here with that right. and then I would choose to ignore those thoughts um, as part of my own 
self-treatment, uh, you can right. say. And you know what I was thinking while you were saying all of that? That, I think, is the connection between the chemical imbalance and the thinking. So the way, um, my interpretation is the way that I think that psychiatrists are seeing is that the process is random, right? And it's like, if we just get the medication, then you boom, you'll produce, you know, kind of dopamine and serotonin. But so from my understanding, I think when people aren't able to believe these more positive things, right? So let's say you tell them something good, right? And so in terms of the cognitive distortion, so they use what's called disqualifying the positive. That doesn't count. So let's say my therapist says something really nice about me, right? That doesn't matter because I pay him, right? So for another person who doesn't, <laughs> right? That I've had, oh, I've had that happen so many times. So if let's say, dude, I pay you, I'm like, oh God. So if you think about it in that way, right? So how can the brain produce, let's say, dopamine or serotonin, right? Which is connected to, let's say, achievement, right? A sense of gratification, right? Pretty much self-esteem, right? Unless it's kind of connected to some sort of carnal need, right? Unless you're, you know, you're just eating something really good and you're like, wow, this tastes good. But a lot of times dopamine and serotonin is produced because we feel good about ourselves, right? So if let's say one person interprets it as, wow, yo, that was like really nice. Like I, wow, that's a nice compliment. And then, you know, you get this sort of rush in your brain that says, ah, oh, you're wonderful, right? So whereas the other person who doesn't produce as much dopamine and serotonin for them, Look, I don't know which one comes first, but it's certainly connected. So they're not able to take the interpretation that the therapist is putting out there. They're not able to say, my therapist thinks I, uh, let's say I'm smart, or my therapist thinks I'm resilient, right? They think like, no, 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 he doesn't think that way. He's bullshitting me, right? He's full of shit because I pay him, and this is what I expect to hear from him, and he knows that. So for that kind of person, right, who always finds a way around, right? So it's like they use these distortions, right, to kind of um, combat distortions. So if my distortion is I'm a failure, and then somebody tells me hey oh my god no you're not you've like done all of these wonderful things and then they're like ah that doesn't count and then they're disqualifying the positive what they're doing is they're substituting one distortion for another so if that's the or rather they're maintaining one distortion with another so if that's the case and i can assume that they're not going to have any sort of chemical uh what they are going to have a chemical imbalance because their sort of thinking is all wrong so interestingly enough what i actually find and um I guess you can say this is what sort of the, no, whatever, I hesitate to use this term, the curative factor, sort of the mechanism that works, is when you're kind of able just to point out to people their various flaws and their accomplishments as well. So if you can give them a more nuanced understanding of who they are, they don't say, or they again hesitate to use this too they don't tend not always but they don't tend to say like oh you're just feeding me positive bullshit because i'm like no no no, i call you out too right so i tell you about the th the kind of shitty things that you do but then on the other hand i praise you for the good things that you do so sometimes i find that that alone kind of helps obviously you know the sort of chemicals balance out whatever you want to call it but it's so interesting like when it comes to kind of medication and the environment and psychology right that a lot of times for us as people because and something that jesse said right we hate complexity we hate nuance right we prefer to essentially to view the world in these very simplistic terms and to kind of push away these problems and so also and not really a tangent but i think connected that a lot of times i think that when we don't want to think about other people's problems and when we don't want to empathize with them it's very easy for us to say yeah let's just send them to the doctor let's send her to the doctor i right? let the doctor figure it out and i've had plenty of times especially with kids where parents will come to me and say oh i don't have no idea what's wrong with him like just you guys you got to fix him you the psychologist I just, I don't know, I've tried all that I could. And then you kind of learn about the kid's life. You see the father's absent, the mother's verbally abusive. He doesn't get any sort of praise. The only time he gets any attention is when he messes up in some so way. Parents yeah, and I'm like, yeah, of course he's... You gotta talk to the parents. Yeah, 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 and it's hard because the parents are like, I don't know, I don't get it. Like, there's something's wrong with his brain. And I'm like, 
yes, but then no, right? So it's like, yes, he technically or she has a chemical imbalance, but it's not the whole story. That the chemical imbalances of this, it's a result of something, right? It's a result of obviously your genes, right? That kind of combine with your environment to obviously, I don't know, deactivate, I guess, or activate the depression genes. So the point is that it's not the whole story that there's a brain chemistry issue. And sort of like, yes, when the kid has low self-esteem and they're unwilling to accept compliments, they're never going to feel good. I mean, unless like, I don't know, they do something that's like, let's say, for just pure physical gratification purposes. So a lot of them overeat because they feel like the only time that they find joy in their lives is literally with food. Some of them obviously use drugs, right? Not obviously the kids, but like kind of the teenagers and the adults. Because for them, it's like the only way that I can kind of balance out my brain is with literally pure physical sort of, um, what are they called? Not toxins necessarily, but like pure pretty much physical... Um, why? Stimulants? Yes! Thank you. Stimulants. There it is, right? So a pure physical stimulants. Because I can't really do anything that will make me feel good about myself because I'm going to explain that away as not mattering anyway. So the only thing that I could really use to feel good about myself is, let's say, literally sometimes drugs, sometimes food. So it's like when you would sometimes ask them. So here's an example, right? So I was seeing somebody who was like um, a heavy drug user, right? So this person is like, yeah, like I feel just really good using drugs, right? Like every time I'm on them, it's like, you know, I'm in this euphoric state. So then I would ask, okay, like, when was the last time you felt a sense of accomplishment? And they're like, uh, uh, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, right, no. yeah, right. So I'm like, right. So if you think about it, right, people who do feel like they have a sense of self-efficacy, they don't really need the drugs, right? Because they have all of these other areas in their lives where they're, or, yeah, in their lives where they feel fulfilled. So they have, let's say, you know, kind of family where they feel important and they feel like they're a big part of their community. And then also on top of that, they have self-esteem and self-efficacy where they feel really important within that community and they feel like they've achieved within that community. So for that person, they're like, yeah, like, I don't know. I've never, I don't know what that's even like. I don't even remember the last time I accomplish something so if we technically need right this sense of uh, like this high or just these dopamine rushes or whatever serotonin rushes then the idea is that if we're not going to get them in terms of our own self-esteem or self-efficacy if we can't look in the mirror and say you know what i feel really good about myself and boom chemistry sort of pops up right if we can't do that then of course we're going to find substitutes and food drugs you name it so when there's no self-esteem it's inevitable that you're going to find something else to make you feel better about it. and yeah sometimes it's even the misuse of benzodiazepines yeah, I mean, uh, whoa, that's well, a lot to yeah. unpack there. Um, I'll say this. Okay, so for example, that patient that um, was, um, this is not just, uh, with full respect to the patient, just with that myopic view of not being able to take a compliment. Yeah. And it's kind of in their own world, like uh, they'll have a cognitive distortion, right. not able to process the compliment. They'll think it, they'll just, you know, somehow do some mental jujitsu. Yeah, 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 Doesn't like, matter. Nope, nope. Uh -huh. um, that's interesting because I think that's because if they actually embraced a totally different way of thinking about it, mm -hmm. that would mean letting go of their current belief system. Yeah. And to a lot of people, that's like not consciously, but it's like synonymous with death or like an uncomfortable feeling that's of. True. Of, it's just it's just purely uncomfortable. Right. Like people would rather hold on to their existing beliefs, than uh, try to embrace a new one and then feel this fear or just this loss of uh, the current understanding of the world. They'd rather keep their current understanding. That's than, interesting. Yeah. So um, one thing I noticed is if somebody is coming from um, 
I'm trying to pass judgment because here's the thing. Like, I, I, I've been there, you've been there, we've all been there, so it's, it's not coming from this kind of place. But if somebody's coming from, a, like, a low place, I try to um, uh, meet them there at whatever level they're at, even if it's complaining. Like, I don't like to complain, personally, but if somebody's complaining... Um, I will uh, meet them where they're at and probably find somewhere in me where I can uh, genuinely uh, complain with them. Or if they're very angry or something, I'll try to find that place in me that's as genuine as, as possible. Because here's the thing, I, I don't like to use this as a tactic. Because here's the thing, there there is a, a thing of where if you meet someone uh, at where they're at in terms of their mental emotional state, mm -hmm. they're more likely to... Uh, listen to you and maybe take some kind of feedback from you because they feel understood. Right. Um, but it, it depends because, uh, and it depends how genuine you are in that. Mm -hmm. If you use it as a tactic, it's not going to be effective. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be negative. I mean, tactics are in themselves not good or bad. No, I hear you. It's just that pe you know, people in general have bullshit detectors and if anyone is really going through some something serious, right then if you meet them where they're at genuinely, they're more likely to let their guard down. Yeah. If they, because maybe inherently they'll think whatever you're doing is bullshit, mm -hmm. unless it's as genuine as possible, they may disregard it and say, this person is just saying this to me yeah. or whatever, and then they won't really connect. You know what's interesting? I think you answered my question. So the one that I asked earlier, so the one of, uh, in terms of synaptic pruning, so is it difficult or why is it difficult for more depressed people, let's say, to form kind of healthier beliefs, right, or to maintain them? So I think that actually makes sense. So if there's a part of them that's afraid, right, they're more anxious or they prefer anxiety to depression, like I actually did. So like, ugh, okay, this is an FYI. When I was like, uh, when I was a patient, right, when I saw a therapist, my therapist kind of called me out on this. So she's like, hey, man, like it literally seems like you kind of use the fear of death, right, or rather... What was it that she said? She said that you kind of, um, you use sort of the fear of death to prevent yourself from living, right? So like you're hyper-focused on it and you're depressed and she's like, it's kind of like you use your depression, right? To kind of, um, what did she say? That you use your depression to sort of, um, to stifle your anxiety, right? So it's like a part of you would rather be sad than scared. And I think maybe that's what I, like, I definitely know that. I wow. Think. Yeah, she said that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like one of the best revelations that ever happened to me, literally. So for her, right? Yeah. So she's like, what you're doing, right? She's, she's like, you're so pessimistic because when you're pessimistic right obviously you're sad but then even like that's not the point right that's like a byproduct but she's like but when you are pessimistic what happens is that you get to prevent yourself from trying and she's like if it's a failure anyway why try right why be anxious so if the anxiety is so debilitating for you she's like of course you're going to prefer the thing that's easier to tolerate not to say that she didn't say hey leon you want to be depressed right that's not at all what she was saying what she was saying is that you saw two evils right it's either i'm really really anxious right and i probably fail because i already believe it right or i'm just really depressed and i don't even bother because I know I'm going to fail anyway, right? So she's like, you pretty much chose the latter because you saw the other one was too risky and too anxiety-provoking, right? So I was like, wow, like this literally blew me away. And it's like you're holding yourself at the time yeah, in one place so, so you don't have to take the next action, which is really scary. It's like holding on to your current existing... Right. Yeah, and therefore yeah, wow. you, don't, you don't give yourself the chance to build up your self-efficacy. Therefore, you don't give your chance or your brain to produce dopamine and serotonin. So with you, what you just said, right, that made so much sense. Because if somebody, let's say, is holding on to their perception of themselves, right, that's what makes them feel safe. And we know as human beings, safety is pretty much the most important thing in our lives, right? Most of what we do is for safety, right? We want to survive. So if somebody, let's say, feels that they, let's say, if I'm kind of scaring them, right, by pointing out these strengths that they have, it's like, oh no, like now that I have 
have these strengths, I have to actually do something about it. Wow. Yeah, so it's much easier to hold back and sort of figure out these sort of cognitive loopholes, right, to get out of it, right? To say, no, 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 you're wrong. No, I'm shit. No, 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 I have nothing going for me. Because if I do have something going for me, now I have to actually build a life. And that is fucking terrifying. Because there's this other still stronger part that says, no, you're worthless. There's no way this is going to work out. You're going to let yourself down and you're going to let everybody wow. down, right? And I think that we do that. So then... Um, do you think there's anything to uh, then meeting whatever paradigm somebody's in currently, meeting them where they're at, in yeah. order to kind of take them out of it little by little? Yeah. Because that for me, I'm not qualified to technically speak. A lot of books I've read, for example, of uh, let's say Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, mm-hmm. uh, Seek First to Understand Then to Be Understood. Mm-hmm. Anytime I've employed that in my own life yeah. it does work it is fantastic it's basically that mm-hmm. that thing right. but um yeah would you think that if if uh, you tried maybe you do do that already as a here's the thing well, what's the question wow i'm so okay well what i want to say is do you think that if you tried that like in sessions where instead of for example you say something positive about the person it's like and it's that person who can't take the compliment mm-hmm. or whatever do you think it would be better to um go into wherever they're at in terms of uh let's say somebody who likes to complain or somebody who's angry or somebody who's depressed mm-hmm. maybe um saying something from whatever their level of thinking is in order to then coax them out of it or something so yeah, okay or, or coax them out bit by bit because you're yeah. not going to do that in no a, instantly yeah so what i try to do is then i focus on the fear right so if let's say somebody's depressed and they're like hey no i feel like shit about myself but i'm like hey no these are the good things about you but then they say hey no they're not so what i do is i try to sort of meet them where they are in terms of their anxiety right so a lot of times like people have these sort of again black and white thinking right so if i'm in intelligent, if I'm beautiful, if I'm a great speaker, a great athlete, whatever it is, right? Sort of that means that I have to actualize my potential. So the expectation is, right, sort of if I'm all of these different things, right, that means I have to do something about it. So sometimes the thinking is I'd rather not be any of these things, right? Because what if I try and find out that I'm none of these things, right? Which is like, whoa, right? We pretty much do that. So the thing is what I try to tell them is like, hey, let's look at all the evidence, right? Sort of the evidence says that you actually are all these things, but it's probably really scary for you to accept it, right? Because then you feel like you have to do something about it. But here's the thing, that even if you fail at this thing, right, that I'm telling you that you're supposed to be good at, right, so even if you fail in school, right, even if you fail as a writer, even if you fail as this, that, or the other, technically speaking, you can be all of these things while still failing, right, so that's the nuanced view. So if we're talking about, so, oh, and I love this, sort of growth mindset, fixed mindset, right, fixed mindset says I'm all of these things, right, or I'm none of these things. Growth mindset says, no, 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 I have this sort of innate potential that I need to develop. So what I try to focus on is that potential. Where if we're talking about, this is a hypothetical, right? Let's say a client of mine wants to be a writer, right? And they're like, well, you know, my teachers told me I was a good writer, but I don't believe them, right? So obviously it doesn't make sense because these are professors, right? They, they're they pretty smart people. They pretty much, they're not going to lie to you. I mean, why? Right? And you're already in school, you're studying this, etc. So if that person doesn't feel like they're going to be a good writer because they can't accept, you know, kind of those beliefs and they say like, oh, well, he's just being nice to me, etc. So then, you know, I focus on the anxiety. I say, okay, what is the fear? The fear is obviously a failure, right? And sort of the intensity of it, the intensity of um, whatever it is the anxiety is or whatever it is of, right? In this case, obviously failure. So if that person is saying that I'm afraid of failing, right, if we can actually get them to admit that, then we talk about what failure actually means, right? Because for them in the sort of general 
generalized way of thinking, a generalized way of seeing the world, failure means I am a failure, right? So it's like, if I'm a good writer, as they say they are, then technically I'm never supposed to get rejected. Technically, I'm never supposed to have my work corrected. Technically, I'm never, I'm supposed to be published, right, many times, etc. right? They have all of these expectations for what it means to become a good, or be a good writer. Here's the problem, though. You can still be a good writer. You can still be intelligent. You can still be witty. You can still be articulate, right? And still be rejected by journals and still have your work corrected and still work on improving your writing. So what we focus on is that anxiety. So if the fear is a failure, right, we would start exploring what failure actually means. So do great writers always succeed, right? Do great writers always produce works of, let's say, magnificence? Do great writers feel like they aren't able to take feedback and that their work has to be perfect every single time? And the answer is no literally no to all of these questions. So if let's say you have this innate talent, if my compliment is you're intelligent, right? I've seen your work before. Your work is actually pretty good. And their interpretation is like, no, you know, you're full of shit. And then I come back to, okay, or you may be afraid of failing, which is why it's so hard for you to accept this worldview. And then they say, yeah. And then we really explore what it actually means to be a good writer. And if we're focusing on, let's say, the growth mindset of that you have this potential that is never taken away from you, right? So let's say, I know that you're intelligent, right? I know it because I know you. I know it because I've had conversations with you, right? And I don't mean this personally, too, obviously. No, no, no. no. I'm smiling because it's you start to think that way. Yeah. But I'm, I know you're talking about somebody else currently. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He's talking, yeah. But technically, Yes, no, 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 it's a stupid little ego. No, I hear you. So, yeah, so then I would say, okay, so you're obviously intelligent, you're obviously all of these things, but here's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. The manifestations of them, right, are literally just manifestations. And if you feel... <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I hear the word manifestations. and I'm sorry, go ahead. It's okay. So essentially what they are, right, is that they're pretty much indicators of your potential, right? So, and so okay, here's... Uh, this is a lot. So here's essentially what they would say, right? Well, what if my potential, right, isn't validated? right? That's always the fear, right? What if they tell me I'm a bad writer? My interpretation is they can be, right? So you've already had all of this feedback. It doesn't just disappear with the failure. So let's say hypothetically, you give in the writing assignment, right? You get a ton of feedback for it. And the person says like, these are all the things you can change, right? So then they could say, see, I told you, oh my God, I failed. I knew it. I knew it was a terrible writer. I was the worst writer ever, right? Mm-hmm. And then I would say that's impossible because these teachers who've already given you the feedback saying that you are a great writer, don't take away that feedback just because of this work, right? What this means, right, What I would ask them, what's a more likely interpretation? That they think you're a failure and that now they've changed their mind? Or is it that they think that you have all of this potential and they're using that potential or they're using sort of their feedback to help, let's say, manifest, manifest your potential, right? Is that one or the other, right? Mm. So how is it possible that now all of a sudden they think that you're a terrible writer, right? Why would they even bother them? Because the thing is, if you really are a terrible writer and you don't have those, like, kind of whatever potential you have, nobody's going to focus on it. Nobody's going to waste their time on no potential. Like it doesn't work that way. So if they thought that you were a failure, you would actually get the opposite result of what you expected. So now, not it's not that you wouldn't have got, or it's actually that you wouldn't have got all that feedback. You would have got no feedback. They would have just said, oh, "Who cares? You're a failure." Right. So what I focus is on two things, right? So your potential is always going to be there, right, based on the feedback that you've got, right. So the world mirrored back to you what your qualities are. It's like that doesn't go away. And then when it comes to let's say the manifestation of it, right, succeeding on a test, like um, playing really good in some sort of game, whatever it is, right? Those are just manifestations of talent that you already have and that even if you screw up on, right, in terms of those events, you're still going to have that same talent, right? Even if you make mistakes, you're still going to have the same talent. So we try to focus more on intrinsic qualities rather than external outcomes. That's it. What's uh, interesting about that is, uh, say what's related to the podcast. Yeah. 
when we first okay actually i like the first episode mm-hmm. but did you notice that as when as we progressed through it we had days when it was like really good yeah. in terms of how in line we were with our speaking or something like that mm-hmm. and days where it was not yep. or if it's like uh we're just starting to get guests or whatever and then there's that whole new challenge now it's like a challenge but you know what i'm saying that's like a new thing too yeah. yeah um so one thing that i noticed is when we were first going through that even though um I was fairly confident about my uh, ability to speak and maybe I had some things that were just kind of in the back of my mind that I can talk about as far as psychology is concerned and philosophy. What was uh, interesting is is that every time we were met with challenges, of course I took on the challenges anyway and uh, you can argue... Um, I wouldn't call them failures, but I would say anytime where I wasn't, um, where I would judge that I was not at my best or something like that personally, mm-hmm. just as my own critic, right. um, I would interpret that as like a, a failure, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't stop me from continuing doing it. Yeah. But, I'll, but to be completely frank and like just transparent about it, it's just like, I definitely did experience, uh, like a back, like going backwards resistance. in my understanding of no, no. Oh. Uh, well, yeah, resistance, but uh, so yes, but also like going backwards in my understanding of the world because mm-hmm. actually I felt like uh, I started to question like, wait, am I actually like able to uh, produce like good content in terms of like whatever I could speak about? Right. Uh, am I too uh, in my head or something? Because as we're going through it, it just felt like there started to be more pressure with the show. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I realized that that pressure was kind of like pressure I was putting on myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, so for example, like if somebody's undertaking writing Mm -hmm. and they fail, it doesn't stop making them a writer or good at writing. So yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, or in general, right? Uh, Also, I feel that way about the podcast, like just because maybe one time or another time I was not in line with my speaking or whatever, doesn't necessarily mean I can't speak or I can't remember certain things. So you're more focused literally on your potential, right? Yeah. Yeah. For example, we had an episode, um, Mm. it was with, this is making me laugh already, with Gordon Marino, Mm -hmm. and we wrote off the denial of death, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's close. And here's the thing. I've read the denial of death. I've, I've. I, there were things I used to just quote from it, left and right, right. I, I love Jason Silva, for example, who quotes denial of death all the time. Yes. And just like in that moment, you're like, oh, uh, oh, Gordon, you read the denial of death. Al, Alan read the denial of death. Alan, can you speak on that? And I was like, it's a good book, something like that. I, I don't remember what my response it was. That. It was, it was really basically that. Yeah. And. You know, uh, I thought that was fine because we just went somewhere else with the conversation. Yeah, it's was, fine, it was, ultimately. Yeah, yes. But if you think about it, I yeah, I did. Uh, you know, that was one of those moments where I'm like, oh wow, I couldn't uh, draw from memory for yeah. whatever reason. Anxiety. I don't it's know all, if I was no, saying. It's, it's usually maybe, anxiety. Fair enough. Okay, if you want to say it is <laughs> fair enough, I would say that I didn't feel anxious in that moment. I just felt oh. like I couldn't recall. Okay, okay. In terms of my own... I hear you. But if you want to say that from... Uh, yeah. I respect it. Okay, okay. Maybe enough. it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's too, like, a narrow... Like, no, you're anxious. Yeah, 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 no, okay. You're, you're I'm not that guy. I try I'm not to be that I'm just joking. Okay, yeah. um, you must <laughs> Stop believe... Stop resisting! No, uh, <laughs> but, um... Except my interpretation. Exactly. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, so... I, that, that was 
that was something where it's like, hey, we're undertaking something, and it's like, uh, even if you fail, it's it's fine. Nothing to get um, you know depressed about or to get low about. It's just yeah. like try again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like yeah, it went off on a tangent here actually a little bit. No, I no, it was close. No, no, no. It, yeah, yeah. But it, then I started. I I know, but. Yeah, no, but I get. I your feel point. like we're distracting from like uh, no. the multiple ways of treating. No, we're and, not. I yeah. actually disagree with yeah. you. We're completely talking about that. Fair so enough. we're talking about the psychological. So for you, what you're saying is that what? So let's say somebody who is super depressed, right? Actually, they would have given up. So they would have looked at the outcome and they would have had that narrow view of, oh my god, this outcome proves that I'm terrible at this. Why am I going to bother anymore? Yeah. So, so okay. So then, to mm-hmm. be fair, I've had times like that. Yeah. This was in the past. It took. It took. Um, it was very. It was definitely, I was definitely able to unwire that uh, side of myself. Right. And I think truly anyone is able to as well. Yep. And I really did have some crazy, crazy, crazy stuff going on in the background. Not just like internally, just with family and stuff like that. Like real, real life stuff. It's yeah. not, I mean, maybe one day I can uh, get more into it, spe- like specifics. But for now, I'll just keep it general. But um, yeah, and through over time i was able to to start to take action little by little and then also um for example if we never met mm. there would not be a podcast i would be maybe still in the uh i would still be attempting to try to do something with the ego ends now page mm-hmm. and slow but here's the thing anytime i did i would undertake something for like a good uh, week or two mm-hmm. Go up, yeah, and then go back down, right? And then, um, and then, then also I couldn't figure out like what I wanted to do with it exactly. I was starting to gain my own like momentum in terms of I would do. I had this side thing I would do on the side where I would be on camera, mm-hmm. and I was practicing what that would be like. So mm-hmm. this way I could pr- be prepared to do something a little more um, structured mm-hmm. for ego, and I, I didn't want to do something uh improvised yeah but then i realized that was me just being a perfectionist and not taking any action until i felt like i was fully uh able to until i was fully i had all the knowledge i needed and all of this and that and i had a such like a structure Mm -hmm. um but yeah if we uh never met if i didn't like uh in in my attempts to go out and socialize and all that Mm -hmm. uh which was part of the treatment of... So here's the thing. At the time we met, though, I was actually, I would say, fine. Mm-hmm. But I would say that it was one of the times where I was not... Uh, I was in a mode of um, uh, working on stuff myself, like at home or something like that. Also, uh, at the time, looking for work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a period of me being in a lot. I didn't have too, so much money, resources, like, to go out. Right. Um, there was a time for that and I used to go out all the time at one point. Uh, then for a while I took a break from that, you can say. So one of the times that we met was actually me coming out of that, um, comfort zone. Uh, cause it was, cause here's the thing, maybe at one time you can, um, have been very social, but then if you go back into having a comfort zone, it has its own momentum. Depression. See, that's what it was for me. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I don't, I, but I, I don't know if it was depressed because I felt like I was coming, I was actually moving up at the time mm-hmm. by doing all these little activities and mm-hmm. yeah. all that. So if if I didn't try to get some momentum in terms of socializing, mm-hmm. just in that one aspect, yeah. we never would have uh, met. Mm-hmm. 
this wouldn't have uh, occurred. And actually, forget even just that. Forget even the podcast. Actually, just a real moment <laughs> yeah. right now. Also, yeah, like we had a lot of laughs. Like uh, sushi the other night, for yeah. example, with uh, all the people without yeah. saying their names yeah, or whatever. The homies. Know, with the homies, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was awesome. A lot of laughs. Mm-hmm. And like stuff like that is, is just awesome. So yeah, if, if, uh, if I didn't try to uh, push past these comfort, these comfort zones or push through resistance, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of good things would not have happened. Right. And I'm very happy that I did. And I would recommend like anyone at home, for example, um, if they're somewhere where, um, it's, and let's say it's a really bad place. I'm mm-hmm. not even saying like uh, moderately or even mildly. Let's right. even say really bad. I would say, well, one, okay, if it's actually severe depression, it would be good to... Uh, meet with someone like uh like probably a therapist actually i would say even a psychiatrist a a psychiatrist yeah if if it's uh like severe if if let's say you went to um an actual therapist or a psychiatrist and they said that you have severe depression actually yes seeing someone is a good idea because if you're in such a low place like that, it's not easy to get out on your own. Yeah. And there may be a lot of different things besides your own internal beliefs and in, uh, that keep you down. Mm-hmm. It could be environment. It could be people who are not supportive mm-hmm. uh, or things like that. It could be people who don't believe in you and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, not everyone has such like bad circumstances, but a lot of people do. So, of course, it's going to be addressed. Yeah. Um, but anyone with, like let's say, uh, mild or moderate, I would definitely say taking little baby step actions one step above where you are currently. For example, if you're, um, let's say you haven't, uh, so I had a period of time where I wasn't um, talking to a lot of uh, of my friends. Mm-hmm. I took a time to just kind of isolate myself and all that. Um, so for me to get out of, let's say, that uh, situation, what I would do is little by little, like once every few days or maybe once a week or something like that, mm-hmm. I might um, message someone who's close to me or something like that, mm-hmm. or as close as possible. Right. Um, and then maybe a little more often, either with that person or with other people, kind of build it up. And that was just in terms of socializing. Right. This is such a complex and... Um, nuance sort of a thing that I really it is of such a case specific thing I, I don't want to be so general mm-hmm. uh, could be if uh, if somebody's very um, if somebody doesn't is agoraphobic for instance and they don't want to go outside maybe attempt to go outside for a second and then right back inside mm-hmm. yeah go outside for three seconds next time go mm-hmm. right back inside right. and like really be very um, gentle with yourself in terms of where you are with it if you even failed it's fine you made an attempt then you try again maybe you didn't you don't try again for a few weeks for whatever Mm -hmm. reason you think that's even more of a failure and it holds you down more maybe not necessarily maybe that's just a part of the process and then you try again and then you build more momentum that's that and again i why did i use agoraphobia i don't know I don't know actually. I could have I could I could have used other examples, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do, I yeah, get yeah. it. Like there's I, as a general thing I would say. You know, I thought you were gonna say, why did I use agoraphobia? Here's this really great detailed explanation. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, no, I would definitely say if if um, wherever someone's at 
to baby step their way from that area. Right. Um, try to, again, look up uh, good sources on the internet, uh, different podcasts. Uh, I don't know. Sam Harris is good. That's oh, one exactly. example. I love that podcast. Yeah. What is it called? Waking Up, right? Waking there you up go. Sam Harris, yeah. Um, that's one example. There's so... Uh, I like Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. I, I like a lot of different um, yeah. podcasts. It depends. It depends on what you resonate with. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would, I would recommend someone to find somebody they resonate with who they would consider to be a role model from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And then attempt to uh, listen to them. Yeah. Little by little. And role models are super important. So a lot of times when people don't have them, obviously, they don't, A, know how to sort of behave and how to act. And then plus, they don't have the sufficient self-esteem because those role models who are non-existent were never there to tell them how great they were. Or even uh, both, right? Tell them how great they were and then obviously point out the things that they should correct. So it's like they don't have a map or a blueprint of themselves on the way that they should go about living. What would you recommend to somebody Mm -hmm. who uh, doesn't want to have a role model or a mentor? I've met actually a lot of people like that who are Mm -hmm. like, I don't need like uh someone to teach me or uh, yeah you do <laughs> no 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 yeah but- uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. but s- say they have that uh, thought mm. for whatever, even if they didn't fully think about it and think that, oh, but I was molded by my environment. So there were plenty of role models. Yes. Mm. But then maybe they don't okay. get there. What would you say to somebody who has a resistance to mm-hmm. uh, having a mentor or listening to like some kind of... I would say point out one person in the entire universe that has ever, through their own sheer will and determination, build up their self and self-esteem. Without anyone. Without anyone. I'd love to see this person. Please bring him, show me anyone, and I would love to see it. It doesn't work that way. We don't exist in vacuums. So everything that was done to us is in some way, let's say before we're able to, or when we were, let's say not willing to, I don't know, whatever. That's a distinction I'm not going to go into because it's way too, it's way too philosophical. But the point is that when it comes to, um, when it comes to self-esteem and when it comes to kind of like, uh, sort of being who you, no, wow, I have lost the thought. Oh, that sucks. Well, we turn mentors, right? When it comes to, oh yeah, so the vacuum, right? So when it comes to sort of existing or non-existing, rather, no. Well, Jamie talked about it too uh, when she had a response to... Yeah, the David Brooks thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I think what I wanted to say was that in terms of being in a vacuum, that nobody, well, technically nobody exists in a vacuum, right? So, oh, right, now I remember. So when it comes to things happening to us, right, essentially before, or like I said, philosophically, I don't know, before we're actually like we're able to or willing or some combination of the two to critical think or critically think, that what happens is essentially that the environment affects us, right? We're pretty much sponges, right? We sort of take in what the environment tells us about us and we take in what the environment tells us about the world. So, and we just react, that's it. We're just pure like kind of kids, right? Right? Kids just react. They don't think about it. They react in terms of how they see themselves. They react in terms of how they see the world. They react in terms of their behaviors. It's pretty much stimulus response, right? Until you sort of get the ability to sort of think for yourself. So when it comes to that, right, if you're talking about not ever having mentors or let's say coming from an abusive environment, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. How can a kid without any sort of mentor learn how to take care of him or herself? How is that even possible? How? I, I don't know. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Where, uh, do you have any other uh, th- thought? Not to you know do that to you, but do you have no, any other thoughts about like maybe um, the article that we? Yeah, read? I was actually just gonna go to the last one. So because we're pretty much out of time. All right, so this is the last statement that well, not the last statement in the article, but one of the most important ones that we have. So Hari says everyone knows that human beings have innate physical needs for food, water, shelter, clean air. There is equally, let's say, clear evidence that human beings have innate psychological needs to belong to. Have meaning and purpose in our lives.
lives, to feel like we are valued, to feel we have a secure future. Future. Our culture is getting less good at meeting those underlying needs for a large number of people, and this is one of the key drivers of the current epidemic of despair. So I love that quote, and I think it pretty much encompasses our entire episode. That what we're sort of focusing on is obviously, in addition to the biological and biochemical troubles in somebody's mind or brain, is that we're focused on the psychological needs that they're missing. And by the way, one of them is having a mentor. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, honestly, that that's fantastic because especially if you if you have a like a role model, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be somebody near you. That's why I mentioned like having somebody in a podcast, for instance. Right. That's why I love the internet because the chances are that the the chances that you'll find someone who can act as a role model mm-hmm. and that you resonate with, considering the vast expanse of people that are and resources that are available online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's so much easier now, in my opinion, than bef- than any time before, to actually um, not just fix just depression or just treat depression, yeah. to just uh, live a very healthy, nice, balanced life mm-hmm. potentially. Yeah. Um, and then also, if somebody's in a in a um, environment that doesn't allow for that, maybe mm-hmm. from an economic perspective. There, there are still resources for uh, you to be able to pull yourself out of that as well. Mm-hmm. Even though, just FYI, I would argue that's still with a role model. Even if you're reading books, even if you're reading literature online, all of these, somebody wrote it. No, that yeah. I no, I'm saying that as well. I'm not saying uh, so. You can find that out from a role model as well right. online. Uh, it's just that um, I would agree that it, it's very hard to, for example, like say there's a somebody you like who says uh, who talks about um, just mentally how to uh, control your uh, emotions, uh, thoughts, feelings, and all that. Yep. But then, how does that help you in terms of um, earning a living? But except in the in terms of when you're relating to other people in attempting to earn a living but there may be other things uh that are missing from that kind of role model Mm -hmm. you may need someone who deals who speaks specifically about something economically related or how to get a job or uh how to do your uh how to do an interview how to do uh, resumes and things like that just very simple things because here's the thing somebody can become um (laughs) could become very uh centered Mm -hmm not so enlightened we could say enlightened sure mm-hmm. but very centered but it doesn't mean that you automatically once you become really centered or enlightened that you get certain skills that you need yeah. in order to um, survive slash thrive in the world mm-hmm. um, and so yeah it would be important to have a healthy balance of sources where you get your information from I hear you. yeah, yeah. Uh, unless somebody is in such a depressed place where and it's a very mental um, sort of challenge that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Then yes, deal with only the people having you know speaking about um, yeah. what's going on internally. Yeah. So it depends because in the article they did address economic yeah uh, yeah. yeah economics dealing with maybe uh, being an aspect of. Uh, depression Absolutely. as well yeah it's, it's a societal right so social the way you think oh and by the way uh, and this isn't something that we didn't we obviously didn't have time to get into but um so in terms of the economic right so the economic as i'm sure you know can obviously affect the way you see yourself so like when i was a kid and i was fucking poor my interpretation was that i am fucking worthless right so i am poor and i'll never be anything else so obviously the pessimism stemmed from my environment so it's all connected that's the point point. and no i don't look i never took an antidepressant so i don't know but 
but I'm assuming that if I still went to back into the other environment, I would have still felt like shit. Damn. So, yeah. I know, right right at the end. I'm like, oh, here's this bombshell. No, 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 <laughs> no. I mean, but what's what's great is that since since we have addressed that there are these multiple ways to treat depression, yeah. it's important to, to highlight that there's never just one way to deal with it no. and there's a balance yeah and when you realize that there's a balance that actually gives a lot of hope mm -hmm. to the hopeless yeah because some people uh before maybe this podcast or or just in general maybe with uh their current thoughts and beliefs maybe they thought it was just one way to deal with it maybe they really did think oh i can only deal with this chemically oh i can only deal with this socially yeah. oh i can only deal with this um economically yeah. uh and that's that's good to know because yeah. then it at least opens up someone to consider other uh, perspectives, yeah. and it could it could potentially change a life that otherwise would have looked at things more, a little more black and white. Yeah, yeah, and I could tell you from personal experience that you can even no longer be poor and still consider yourself as poor. So that's the psychological for you. Yeah, mm -hmm. and. There you go. So it, it's important, and so it's a journey. And uh, but one thing that's uh, actually, yeah, I would like to leave it with this. Mm -hmm. uh, back to that baby stepping idea. If if you use these ideas um, or some of the other ideas that we talk about in the podcast, um, and you are somewhere, if you move forward uh, to a place that is uh, ahead of where you were before. Mm -hmm that progress is is tremendous it, it really is a it's a big deal even if it's even if you're 1.1 percent better today than mm -hmm. you were yesterday yeah think about how that would stack as days go on if you kept that sort of rate of growth yes that eventually uh, a year later and i understand for some people they want the change right away and i understand a lot of uh, also products and like self-help products and all that market things is like transformation now you know you'll be transformed with this even if they say it's a six-day thing or a week product or whatever mm -hmm. it's it's really it's much longer than they would you know otherwise reveal at least in the marketing aspect i'm not yeah. saying they're hokey yeah maybe but, they do address that in the actual product mm -hmm. but in the marketing of it it's not that quick it's just to grab your attention but you can also be like in terms of long-term achievements be proud of the short-term achievements that you have too yeah, mm -hmm. uh, for uh, exactly. Right. There's a lot. There's I, a I, lot. Here's the thing. Yeah, yeah, I felt like I could speak. There's here's a lot. Thing. We're, right we're, I think we're getting to a level where I think we could even, if we wanted to, do two hours and arguably even three hours. <laughs> but we're, you know, just in the interest of time. Yeah. I guess we'll stop it here, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like, should we go on? No, we should. No, it's stop already. It, it's right? Are we like an hour and twenty? Yeah. Wait, wait. This is it's pretty. We could do a follow up episode to this. That's true. Yeah, well, I don't want to do that because I think the follow-up episode could be good too. That works. All right, cool. All right, then. Guys, remember to... Uh, guys and girls, <laughs> remember to follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Uh, we're also on Google Play and iTunes and wherever you can find podcasts. Uh, working on getting everywhere, but that's neither here nor there. Also remember to subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell, mm -hmm. and we will see you next time with a very special guest.